So the radical part of killing time comes from the fact that in order to do it properly, you have to say no to something. You have to say no to something that already exists on your calendar that would be standing in the way of you and this you know, casual social connection that you might um, put to work for you instead. Um, so saying no to some things means saying yes to hanging out and spending time with each other. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The U.S. Surgeon General warned earlier this month that there is an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. Champlain College professor Sheila Liming has a cure for this social disease. In her new book, Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time, Liming asserts that the simple act of hanging out offers connection, intimacy, and meaning. It is an act of resistance against the relentless pull of consumerism, individualism, and the encroachment of digital culture into every aspect of our lives. Hanging out with others doesn't just make you feel good. It can save your life. The Surgeon General warns that loneliness can increase your risk of premature death to levels comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It increases your risk of dementia by 50%. Sheila Liming is an associate professor of professional writing at Champlain College. She previously taught at the University of North Dakota. She's the author of three books, and her essays have appeared in The Atlantic, McSweeney's, and other publications. I began by asking her about the characterization of loneliness as an epidemic. This is a kind of epidemic that I think has been developing for some time, and that includes well before the COVID pandemic came along and made it even more difficult for many of us to access each other, to access ways of hanging out. Um, But I've been calling it elsewhere, you know, a a quiet crisis of a kind, because it is a crisis. It's one that affects us on a personal and an individual level, but also on a mass level or at the level of society. But it's one that's difficult to diagnose and to see, and sometimes even to notice within our own society. I think in part because we are so busy. We're we're very, very busy, scheduled people in the modern world. And with all of that frenzy of activity, it becomes difficult sometimes to notice that the things that we are busy doing are things that are sometimes preventing us from just hanging out and making social relationships and building connections with each other that strengthen ourselves and our community. What inspired you to write a book about hanging out? I was inspired by a lot of things. And this process for me started several years ago. So it was before the the COVID pandemic came along um, initially. But one of the things that I was inspired by was the students that I work with. Um, I'm a college professor, so I mostly work with students ages, you know, 18 to 24 years old. Um, And these days in my work at Champlain College, that's, that's really the population that I'm mostly seeing and working with. But even before I moved to Vermont in 2020, and even before I started working with that particular college population, this was something that I was thinking about in terms of the students that I see and interact with. And I was thinking about it as I was noticing these shifts in social behavior. Um, It wasn't so long ago, I would say maybe even 10 years ago, when if you were in a conversation with somebody and they took out their cell phone in the middle of that conversation and started like looking something up or talking to somebody else that would have been viewed as rude but i think we've actually shifted away from that and those behaviors are becoming more normalized 
and less seen as a kind of incursion on whatever that social situation is that we might find ourselves on in in the present. And so I was noticing these behaviors among, you know, the younger people that I work with, and I was also noticing what happens when you get a bunch of college kids in a classroom and you basically just give them time to sit there and hang out, whether it's work time or whether it's before class starts or whatever. And what generally happens is there is a silence that descends upon the room and everybody gets their phones or their computers out and they're talking to people who are outside the room. And that was really interesting to me because I thought in many ways, these people are you know, self-selected to be in this environment where they have a lot of things in common with each other. They're all um, in the same age group and they're enrolled in the same college and they're taking the same class. But there was very little conversation happening between them. And there was lots of conversation happening outside of that immediate environment. You've been in these kind of college settings for decades, both first as a student, then a graduate student, now as a professor. Has that changed um, from what you see? I think it has changed, um, and I think it's been gradual. And some of the behaviors that have come along with that change, I think, in their own ways, can be viewed as beneficial or good. Um, we are developing new ways to connect to each other, and that means that we're doing a better job sometimes of finding audiences or people that are going to support us and encourage us and understand us. Um, but a downside of that, I think, is that we are doing, by comparison, a worse job of connecting with each other across the um, across the divide of difference or where we feel like we might not necessarily have something in common with someone else. It, it starts to get a little bit tricky and a little bit more difficult. Um, in the book, I reflect a lot on my own experiences um, over the years, and, and I think about, you know, the ways that I made friends when I was a young person and how much of those friendships were based simply on physical proximity. You know, the people that I lived with or lived near, the people that I took classes with, the people who were in my major. And to some extent, of course, those things still happen for young people. But I think now there's that constant temptation to reach out beyond wherever you currently find yourself to someone else that you maybe already know or um, whose connection you know is already going to like support you and encourage you and, and feed you in a different kind of way. So in a way, the, you know, the, the myriad ways we are now connected digitally gives the illusion of being hyper-connected and yet the reality of being disconnected as you find when you walk into a classroom and nobody's talking to each other. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly the case. Um, as these connections become more multiplied, as we as we get more of them that are spread across this larger terrain, I think the risk is that they can become shallower as well. Um, that the connections we are forming are not deep enough to sustain us when things are difficult, when we need help, when we need um, support. And that becomes a real problem, both at the level of individual mental health, and I think also at the larger level of like social and cultural health. The subtitle of your book, Hanging Out, is The Radical Power of Killing Time. What's radical about killing time? I, I mean, I'm, I'm flattered because I feel like <laughs> I, I didn't know what I did was radical a lot of the time. <laughs> I actually feel like I am not um, I'm not an expert about 
killing time itself. I'm not great at killing time. It's actually something that I think I've had to train myself to recognize the value of and to relax a little bit and get better at it. I think when we talk about that concept of killing time, there's that negative connotation that's placed upon it. I mean, we have it implicit in that word killing, that we're like wasting something um, or, you know, putting it to rest. And I instead really want to think of that as a kind of active category of activity that instead of killing time what we might be doing is actively investing it or actively putting it to use not necessarily to make anything or to get richer at the end of the day but to form our connections with each other so the radical part of killing time comes from the fact that in order to do it properly you have to say no to something you have to say no to something that already exists on your calendar that would be standing in the way of you and this you know casual social connection that you might um, put to work for you instead um, so saying no to some things means saying yes to hanging out and spending time with each other so uh we've skipped over the basics which i always feel like one of the best things that I get to do in my job is to go right to the basics. Hanging out. We skipped over saying, what is it? Tell us. Uh, hanging out, as I define it in the book, is daring to do very little and daring to do it in the company of others. And I work through a number of definitions of what hanging out can involve, some of them being sort of formal things like parties or special occasions, but some of them being very informal things like the way we hang out when we're at work, the way we talk to and interact with colleagues, the way we talk to neighbors, or even interacting with strangers um, who we just share our physical world with when we're um, entering into public space and navigating public space. So hanging out can mean a lot of different things, but the emphasis is on doing it with other people. So we're having this conversation at the tail end of a global pandemic, which did, let's just say, a number on hanging out. What did COVID do to hanging out? It, it didn't end it, but it transformed it but maybe not in the greatest ways. I think COVID helped to complete a process that was already underway before the pandemic came along. And that was a process that saw this shift from hanging out taking place largely in person or with the expectations that it should take place in person to taking place more on the internet or in mediated forms, mediated ways. And that process was, as I said, already underway. COVID made it sort of a mandate. We, we couldn't hang out with people in person anymore. So we started to hang out with them more and more through our phones or our computers or our various digital devices. And at first that started as a coping mechanism, you know, as a way to say, well, I can't get the kinds of social interaction that I'm used to having, so I'm going to have this instead. And then by the time we started to come out of the COVID pandemic a bit, I think those behaviors had become entrenched and the coping mechanisms had become by and large just our habits and our behaviors and the way that we had gotten used to living our lives. So one of the post-COVID things that we're dealing with right now, and uh, you may be dealing with it in your own workplace, is the issue of going back to workplaces, to offices. And it is proving to be a struggle in many places, requiring that employees uh, show up. You know, people can't unsee what just happened in the last three years where they could get a lot of work done <clears throat> in their pajamas. Now, as a freelancer, a lifelong freelancer, I am not the one to criticize others for working in comfortable clothes, let's just say. <laughs> um, but, you know, it turns out that 
all the loneliness that we feared, all the human interaction that we've kind of longed for during COVID, now that the opportunity exists to have it again, it many, many people are saying, no, no, I don't want so much of that. I do want to be at home. What, how do you assess that? Well, I think a lot of that desire to either work from home or to have some flexibility over one's working situation, I think that has to do with exerting some kind of level of control. And many of us, when we feel like we don't have very much control over our working lives, that feels like something accessible to us, um, that we can then say, okay, well, I'm not coming to the office on Tuesday, and that's gonna be a more flexible day for me, and I can get my doctor's appointments in or whatever else I have to do. Um, because so many of us have been, uh, for many years, used to the opposite, where it was sort of difficult to schedule and uh, make those things happen outside of work. So I certainly understand that. And I too, like you, I'm pretty sympathetic to that because, you know, as a writer, I've spent plenty of time working remotely or on my own or in various, you know, um, places, coffee shops, et cetera, to get my work done. So I, I get that feeling of that desire to exert some control over the conditions of one's work. But there's also downsides that I think come with that too. Um, one is a decline in the kind of social relationships that allow us to feel like we are attached to the working places that we're involved in. Um, another is a feeling of being supported and encouraged in our work. You know, if you're in a shared office environment or a shared workplace, you can go to somebody and you can ask them for help or you can ask them a question. It's casual. It's not that intrusive. But it's a whole different thing if you say, well, I see there's time on your schedule on Friday afternoon for 15 minutes. Can I set up a Zoom meeting so I can ask you a question about a problem that I have right now? I mean, that's that's hard. And what it usually leads to is that worker ends up trying to solve that problem on their own. And this feeling that everybody exists for themselves, they're all in it by themselves and there's no sense of support. And then, of course, the final downside to that has to do with worker solidarity and with the sense of control that we have over our working relations as a group of people who all work together for a particular company or an organization or an institution. And I think we've been seeing that recently in our culture, you know, with the wave of unionization fights that have been happening at places like Starbucks and things like that, where people do work together and are able to have conversations about how they feel about their working environments. You call in your book for more parties, more shared meals, more in-person gatherings, more late-night conversations, more being together in public, more cooperation, more standing shoulder-to-shoulder, -shoulder, more social reverie, and you push back against a socially divided future. Um, I want to talk about um, both what's good about those things, but also the reality that, you know, as some people hear you sing the praises of parties, they also think about why it is they don't go to parties, that feeling of loneliness, even though you're surrounded by people. How do you address that concern? Yeah, I think there's probably no sense of loneliness that feels more lonely than when you're feeling that in the midst of a group of people um, or in some kind of large social gathering. And I think most, if not all of us, know that feeling in one way or another. Um, in the book, I, I talk about um, instances like parties as forms of hanging out, and I try to talk about both the good and the bad associated with them. So even as I'm calling for more of these kinds of gatherings, I'm also acknowledging some of the many ways that people feel 
um, nervous or anxious um, about attending them. And I think those anxieties are very real to us. So I tell a story in the book about a time when I attended a party, sort of because I felt like I had to, it was a social obligation. It was a going away party for a coworker of mine who I'd been working with for about two years. And she invited me to the party and I showed up and I didn't really wanna go, but I felt like I needed to, and it was the right thing to do. And then while I was at the party, I got in this conversation with her that became like kind of testy. And she basically called me on, on my being there. And she said, why are you here? And I had to say, well, because you invited me. And in that moment, it was like, we both had suddenly acknowledged that neither of us wanted the other person there. So it's like, I didn't want to be there and she didn't want me there, which felt very silly. It was like this whole acknowledgement that we were just doing this because we felt forced to and not because there was some kind of authentic motivation behind it. So I bring that up, you know, to point out that um, not all parties, of course, are these grand, wonderful celebrations for all attendees or all members, but that an essential part of hanging out, I think, is building this kind of musculature for social discomfort. Um, that it's not always going to go wonderfully every single time, but the more often we do it, the more able we're kind of able to get over, you know, the minor discomforts or the feelings of of risk or awkwardness and move on to maybe having it be better the next time we try it. Being asked, why are you here in the middle of a party that sends a shiver up my spine? Because <laughs> <laughs> what, what can possibly be a good answer for that? Exactly. Um, <laughs> so you're, you're describing hanging out as kind of like sometimes going for a run in the rain in the morning, you know, you just do it because you know, you need to get exercise and stay in some semblance of shape. And so even though it's raining, just get your sorry butt out there and run anyway. <laughs> that is that is such a good metaphor too. Um, I do think of it a lot in terms of exercise. But as an ex runner myself, I would say that that is exactly the right way to think of it. <laughs> So just staying in shape, you feel like people fall out of shape for, you know, just hanging out and interacting with other people casually? I think so. Yeah. Um, I, I, in the book, I, I talk about hanging out and, and social aptitude as a kind of musculature or a sort of like um, exercise. And as we all know, you know, exercise hurts at first. First, the first time you try to do something that you're not used to doing, you know, you end up sore and feeling bad the next day. But if you persist and you keep doing it, it's going to get a little easier every time. And one thing that I think has happened over the past 10, 15 years, really since about 2007 and the invention of the smartphone and the way that it's changed our world, is that we've fallen back on these um, comparatively more comfortable um, ways of interacting. And we can think of, you know, the way that we interact through our digital devices as being kind of like, you know, the sweatpants version of social interaction. It's, it's comfortable, it's protected, it's on our own terms, it's relatively easy, and it's also relatively risk-free. If we run into something we don't like, we can change the channel, or we can close the browser tab, or we can go to another conversation, and we can shut down the thing that's bothering us. But in-person social interactions don't work that way, or at least if we try to make them work that way, there are consequences that arise as the result of that. So I do think it's about um, habit and practice and a sense of musculature or building up the stamina um, for social exercise. Do you think, I mean, it, it immediately what comes to mind for me is, you know, our political polarization and 
on if you're online you can click out of some venue that challenges your way of thinking to a place that aligns with your way of thinking and be completely reinforced in your view of who's good and who's bad but in a room of people you can't do that you got to talk to that person who holds view that views that you find offensive and yet those people whose views you find offensive maybe why you don't want to go into those public settings um, and also I feel like you know within the aftermath of me too you know women are not being can choose more they don't have to go to those work parties and be with those creepy people who they don't particularly want to be around you there's an empowering aspect to not hanging out too certainly and I don't think that anyone should have to suffer bullies or should have to suffer personal attacks or anything of that nature. So when I'm talking about taking risks with hanging out or engaging in acts of small discomfort, I'm not talking about engaging in acts of danger or acts that put us in position where we feel like our humanity is not valued. That's not necessarily the same thing. But I'm talking more about like, for instance, what happens when I'm in a classroom? Because when we're in a classroom, we're, you know, we're in this somewhat closed private environment for a little while where conversations are gonna happen and you're going to hear things that you don't necessarily agree with. But, you know, unlike in say an online situation, you can't just get up and leave the classroom. There's gonna be consequences if you do that. And so there is this sense that the way you know education is is set up for us here in the United States that you're supposed to stay there and see if you can stick it out to see if you can try to talk to this person try to understand their beliefs a little bit better maybe figure out what they're saying and maybe even figure out if what they're saying is is different from what they mean because that is often the way that we express ourselves at least when we talk to ourselves um, in, in in person like that and that's not something that we generally have the patience for when we're interacting and hanging out online, because like you said, we can just go somewhere else where we know that our views are going to be echoed and supported and championed, and it's going to be a lot less um, full of friction in those environments. And so what I'm arguing for is, you know, to develop a stamina to withstand some of that friction, which I think is actually important to the way that we function um, interpersonally within our democracy as well. Hmm. You write that complaints against hanging out are often framed in racist or classist terms. What do you mean by that? Well, I think when we talk about hanging out or killing time, um, we often talk about it in terms of laziness, that it is something that is done to avoid work or else to, um, to like voice a kind of um, resistance to work. You know, this sense that poor people hang out because they have no jobs. Um, and there's also lots of racist language that comes along this way too, when we look at you know the way that certain classes or groups of people hang out. And you know I tried to deconstruct some of that language and ward against it because in my mind, actually hanging out is extremely productive. What we produce when we hang out are our deeper connections to each other and to the society that we live in. And those are not things that we should be taking for granted in a world where we feel extremely politically divided and where we're having a difficult time making social change happen. So those connections are important and hanging out involves prioritizing them. Hmm. What are some of your favorite ways to hang out? 
Um, well, I'm a musician, so I like to hang out with other musicians um, and play music. And that can be in a casual setting. In the book, I talk about jamming, that kind of classic act of musicians. I feel so grateful that in Vermont here, I found lots of different ways to hang out with musicians and jam. And I've only even been living here for three years, but I've discovered lots of places already. Um, and I also play a very strange instrument. I play the bagpipes, which is, is not an instrument that um, a lot of people know how to deal with in jamming sessions. Um, but I play with a, a group of bagpipers that's based out of Montpelier, and we meet once a week in a high school cafeteria and play our bagpipes together. But of course, that is also social hour for us too. We also, you know, trade stories and talk about what's going on in our lives and everything like that too. And and what I love about that group in particular is that there's a huge um, group of ranges. You know, the youngest player in our group these days, I think, is 17, and the oldest is probably in their 80s. So we're all across the board, and um, it really provides not just a you know a regular form of solace that i can count on every week but also some very useful challenges um in terms of like my ways of thinking and also you know my ability to get better at my instrument and work on things involving that too i know that you're also a singer you play piano and you play accordion you are multi-instrumentalist <laughs> um and i was drawn to that part of your bio because i'm also a musician and i often think of i'm a clarinetist <laughs> um, and I often think of the ultimate metaphor for communicating is the way a jazz trio passes leads around the group effortlessly. What do you take from the music that you do into the world? You know, what lesson can we learn from jamming? That's that's such a good point. And I'm glad you brought up jazz here, too. Um, I talk a lot about jazz in the book, in the chapter that's on jamming, because I think that's where you find some really, really good writing on this subject is with regards to jazz. And I'm drawn to people who have tried to theorize jazz by thinking about it as a kind of conversation. And of course, conversations require listening. And you know that when you're in a jam scenario, what you have to do is you have to listen to what other people are doing. If you if you tune out, if you lose the rhythm or you lose your spot to enter into the music, it's like you're not supporting the jam, you're working against it. So it's this group activity that that unfolds sort of like a conversation with these entrances and exits. And to me, that's a really good metaphor for thinking about what hanging out is in general, um, that it is a process of giving and taking. It is about listening as much as it is also about talking um, and contributing something. And it's also about existing in this environment where you're not trying to make anything that's going to come away from the interaction. So in the jam, it's it's not like you're making a record that you're going to take away from the event, although sometimes that happens. It's more just that you're there in the moment to be with these other people and listen to and learn from what they're playing and then contribute something back. Sheila, I wonder if you could just tell us a little about uh, your journey, both personal and professional, that brought you to Vermont in 2020. Yes, absolutely. It's been a strange one at points. Um, I moved here in 2020 because I had accepted a new job uh, working at Champlain College, a job that I was very excited about. I was previously at the University of North Dakota, where I worked for six years, um, located in Grand Forks, North Dakota, a big state school. So I was moving to a different style of an environment. But then I moved here across the country in the middle of a pandemic and arrived to discover that I would be teaching for a full year online. So um, it was not the start to my life in Vermont that I thought it would be. 
Uh, it was it was a little challenging at first because, of course, it was very difficult to meet people and to hang out. Um, the way that I have normally gone about doing that in any place that I've ever lived is to try to make friends through music um, and through playing music and jamming. But that even was something that wasn't really happening um, at the time when I was here in Vermont. But I did start to slowly, haltingly get to know my neighbors. And I, of course, started to get to know my students through our online interactions and to some degree, my colleagues, too, who would you know, meet up with me and take me on walks and introduce me to things around Burlington and around Vermont and, and things like that. So that was the beginning of my journey here in Vermont. Three years later, um, I feel just shockingly well connected to the community that I live in. Um, I volunteer here, I play music here, I have friends here, I have neighbors, I even have family members, distant family members that I discovered living in Vermont. So I have I have found my way in to the world that I moved to, but it took some doing um, and it didn't happen by accident. I, I tried very consciously to make it happen. Hmm. Um, I wanna tell you, you've written about your time at the University of North Dakota, which as you know, in the book, you became very fond of living there. It wasn't a place you were familiar with, um, but it's also a place where um, they were making severe cutbacks in education. Um, and many of your students were leaving the departments because they feared there would be no department uh, by the time they graduated or not much of one. Say a little bit about North Dakota. And of course, lately it has been in the news um, for uh, passing one of the strictest abortion bans in the country and kind of this imposition of a lot of, uh, I would just say, hard right <laughs> social policies. Um, so take us on a little journey to North Dakota. What, what was your experience there? And of course, I'm sure it was a wonderful place in many ways, too. Um, I moved to North Dakota in 2014, and North Dakota was not a place that I chose necessarily. It was a place that chose me. Um, I was applying for jobs all over the country, and that was the one that I got. But in many ways, it seemed like a good fit for me. So I was excited to move there with my partner, who, by the way, before we moved to North Dakota, had never even set foot in the state. So I, I got to spring that on my partner and say, guess where we're going to live now? And then we moved to North Dakota. But um, one of the first things that happened when I got to North Dakota is that the university that I worked for had a transition, had a tradition, sorry, of taking new faculty members on a bus tour of the entire state. And we would get on this bus and we would drive around, we'd go to the state capitol, we'd go to small towns that were known for, you know, making one particular sort of pastry or something like that. And we would do this kind of tour. And it was very useful for me to get to know the demographics of the state that I was living in and working in, and also the demographics of the student population that I would be mostly working with since I was working for a state college. And I had a wonderful time living there. Um, North Dakota and the prairie states in general, um, it's a place that forces one to make their own fun, but there's lots of fun to be found if you start to root out and find those groups of people who are um, invested in making their own fun, which I was fortunate that I was able to do. So I made some great friends there and had some wonderful colleagues that I worked with too. But there was this shadow the whole time, which was the shadow of increasing state um, legislated cuts to the education budgets. 
And they happened almost every single year. We went through five straight years of budget cuts while I was living there. And things kept shrinking all around me. Resources kept shrinking. The pool of colleagues that I worked with kept shrinking. Um, somebody who you used to count on to do a particular job, you'd email them, they didn't work there anymore, they were gone. And it became a really difficult place to do my job and to do it well. Um, and it was, it was hard. It was hard from a kind of mental and emotional level as well as just from a practical level. Um, so I learned a lot in the time that I lived in North Dakota, and I reflect on a lot of that in the book. I don't think I meant it to happen this way, but I am cognizant that now that the book has been written and published, that it ended up being a kind of love letter to my time in North Dakota, almost in spite of itself. Um, because of course, there's a lot of difficulties um, that are presented by the political situation in the state, but there's, there's a lot to love there too. Mm -hmm. And you know, as we say these things and about the struggles of University of North Dakota, I shouldn't skim over the fact that um, the Vermont State College system is in turmoil and is making job cuts that is causing a lot of consternation and upheaval with faculty and students. So um, we are not so different in, in that regard. Talk about, compare hanging out in North Dakota and hanging out in Vermont. Well, in some ways there are some similarities there. Um, if I think about what hanging out means in a place like Vermont, I think that often it means hanging out in private space in people's homes. And that's something that I think can be sort of intimidating about life in Vermont because you have to meet people, you have to get to know them, and then crucially, you have to get invited inside. And it feels like it takes um, a lot to make that happen sometimes. You know, it's not going to happen the first time you meet someone, so you kind of have to work on that relationship. North Dakota, there was something similar going on there. And I, I think this is a kind of, um, you know, consciousness that that proliferates in these more rural states where things tend to be spread out. Um, there tends to be less emphasis on public spaces and more emphasis on private spaces. And so that's something that actually the two states have in common in some ways. And in Vermont, um, it has taken me a while to find my way into those private spaces. But now that I have found my way in there, what I have realized is that it's often not that, you know, nobody wants you there or that they're like, you know, being rude and not inviting you. It's it's often, I think, this awkwardness of figuring out how to extend that initial invitation. And so I find that like once you get to know somebody here in New England, um, you find that the invitations start coming uh, more and more often um, once you get your foot in the door. You know, there's the image of the taciturn Yankee uh, the, yes. and and the difficulty that that poses for newcomers. Uh, yes. You're from away, and uh, perhaps many things about you signal that. I don't mean you specifically, but one's accent, one's way of talking, one's uh, social uh, preferences and habits. Do you find any of that here? Yes, I'm glad you asked that question. It's one that I think about a lot. Uh, in the Midwest, I became used to this personality trait there um, that people would often remark on, which is that everyone is very, very nice to your face. They have really great manners and they're very friendly up front. Um, and if they have anything negative to say about you, they're gonna say it in secret behind your back, which means you don't always know that they're saying it. There's this old saying in North Dakota that if you have a party, you can invite 50 people, they'll all tell you they're coming and then like only five will show up, right? Because <laughs> nobody wants to say no. And I actually find in New England, it's, it's almost the reverse here, which is that people are kind of more taciturn on the surface. They're more kind of gruff seeming sometimes or else like less obviously polite and emotional and emotive. 
but behind your back, they're saying all kinds of nice things about you. <laughs> and, and they're secretly, you know, trying to find ways to get to know you better and to develop better connections with you. Um, they just feel awkward about like doing that on the surface. So I, I find it an interesting inversion of what I became used to in the Midwest. Um, and I, I'm still kind of, I think, cracking the code a little bit. <laughs> You know, Vermont has been on the receiving end of what I call uh, kind of the COVID land rush, which is lots of people in cities um, buying land, moving to Vermont. And part of what they're seeking out is isolation, is getting away from the crowded spaces. And of course, during COVID, there was a public health dimension to wanting to be away from crowded places. Um, but that's not the case anymore. So. Vermont has this reputation as a place where you go, where you leave, you know, big social gatherings to go. Um, what does that mean for hanging out in Vermont? Is it, you know, is there some resistance to it here, perhaps, that there might not be in other places? Potentially, at least on the surface. And that land rush you're talking about, I think, is partially inspired by the diminishment of what in the book, you know, I refer to as third places. And that's borrowing the concept of third places from the sociologist Ray Oldenburg, who developed that concept in the 1990s originally. But third places are effectively public places that you can enter into for free or for very low cost, where you can hang out. You don't need to prove yourself in order to be there. You don't need to, um, you know, purchase something that's very expensive to be there, maybe a cup of coffee or something like that, but not too much. And I think the land rush that we've been witnessing since the onset of COVID has to do with the shrinking of those places that, you know, once upon a time, the great thing about living in a place like New York City was that you might have a tiny apartment, but you had access to everything. You could go out and you could easily access cafes or parks or libraries or public institutions or concerts or whatever. But as those places shrink, as they become more expensive to find our way into and thus more prohibitive for some people, I think we get, on the other hand, this emphasis on private space. And I think that Vermont is seen as a good place to pursue the dream of private space. And yes, that can affect hanging out and the way that people hang out, because Ideally, um, I want to see people hanging out in public places, places that they share with each other, because those are easier for people to enter into and to, you know, make friends and connections in. Um, when we consign them to private places, the bar for entry becomes a little bit higher, as I've been talking about, and it does become a little bit more difficult to access them. We spent a lot of time not hanging out during the pandemic, or um, as we reconstruct the world of hanging out, what's different now? First of all, I love that phrase, reconstruct the world of hanging out, because that's exactly what we have to be doing here. And part of what's different is that I think our expectations for how hanging out is supposed to work have shifted. And in many ways, I, I think we've developed um, higher expectations, along with a little bit of impatience that comes with those higher expectations. This sense that um, that discomfort can be evaded um, if you if you want to, that you can avoid it or shift your attention somewhere else if you're feeling uncomfortable about the situation that you find yourself in. And because that's not always true, where hanging out and in-person interactions are concerned, that's something that creates a lot of anxiety in a post-pandemic world as we try to return to figuring out what that looks like. 
Um, but I think there's some good things about that too. I think as you were saying earlier, David, that there's some good things to be found in resisting circumstances that you don't wanna be in, in saying no to certain circumstances. So you can say yes to other ones and prioritize the forms of hanging out that really make you feel good and that really increase your connections to the social world. Hmm. Um, you've talked about, uh, you mentioned earlier, there are good dinner parties as one form of hanging out and bad ones. What's the difference? I think bad dinner parties go bad when we overthink what has to happen in the context of that dinner party or become too attached to a rigid set of expectations for what's supposed to be the outcome. So um, I'm thinking about the way that dinner parties can sometimes feel awkward if it feels like there's a lot of rules involved and that no one's able to sort of like relax and just enjoy themselves. My partner and I, we often reminisce like about a dinner party we were at. This was, I think, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, but it still lives in our minds because it was so horrific. We were at this dinner party that was like very highly structured up to the minute, like the, the host had like a plan for everything that was supposed to happen all evening. And it was just very tense feeling. And when we got out of it, we were just really happy to be done with it. But I think on the other hand, you know, a wonderful dinner party um, occurs when you just kind of allow people to, you know, I'm going to use the verb unfurl, but basically just to open up and, and to be loose and casual and to do the things that they want to do. It's difficult to have that happen when you're a guest in somebody's home. But I think if you can make people feel comfortable and feel welcome and also avoid that sense of burdening everyone with these very, very high expectations for what has to happen, you can have a really wonderful time with each other. Just remembering that it's about conversation and food, two pretty basic things. So I love that you end your book with um, a how to guide, a how to <laughs> hang out. Um, and, you know, the idea that in 2023 we've we are highly evolved in many ways, but maybe along the way we lost the know-how of the skill set. So tell us some of your tips for how to hang out successfully. Sure. In the final chapter, which I call How to Hang Out, I kind of style it around this, this set of five um, rules, or I don't want to call them rules, but more like guidelines or cues. And they all start with the word take. Um, so it all hinges on this idea of seizing something and taking it, um, taking advantage of it. So the first one that I start with is take time, which is a simple and yet a very difficult one to achieve for some of us. And it just involves prioritizing our social relationships. So taking time to make sure that you are attending to those social relationships and, and treating them like the priority that they ought to be in our lives. The second one, which I've already touched on a little bit here, involves taking space. So that involves like entering into public space, insisting on our right to have access to public spaces, using those public spaces to our social advantage in our culture and in our society. Um, and then it proceeds from there. But one of the other um, advice points that I have there is the idea of taking heart, which basically just means remember that not every hanging out um, is going to be successful. It's not always going to be perfect. It's not always going to be good. It's okay if things run off the rails sometimes. It's okay if there's awkwardness or discomfort. It's okay if you get in a fight as long as you make up later on. So taking heart and just remembering that, you know, these things come and go in waves and that it's always okay to try again. I, I really appreciate the down-to-earth aspect of your book in that you don't just skip over the fact that 
people may not know how to do the thing you're talking about. Even though that term hanging out seems so obvious, you don't finish the book without telling people there's a way to do this in case you're wondering. And the, this is some tips uh, on how. Um, talk about the response that your book has received. It You have been getting a lot of exposure. I came across uh, your book and you uh, listening to Ezra Klein, who has a, a podcast that I really love with the New York Times. And you spoke for about an hour and a half with him on that podcast, um, as well as other places. So uh, um, what are you hearing back? Um, the, the response has far exceeded my expectations for the book um, when I was writing it. And that's a good thing. I mean, I sometimes think that as a writer, the only way to really go about writing a book is just to imagine that no one's going to read it. And then you end up writing the book that you want to write, right? The one that is true to your thoughts and your feelings. But then the opposite happens and people start reading it. And then all of a sudden you have to have these conversations talking about the things that you said and defending them or clarifying them. Um, so the response has been surprising to me. Um, and it's it's been surprising in the way that it has entered into multiple arenas and multiple um, you know, spheres of conversation. Um, just two nights ago, my book was a clue on the show Jeopardy, um, oh, which you was... have made it now. <laughs> I, I know that's oh, what but I what too. dollar value were you assigned? Twelve hundred dollars. <laughs> oh, big time. <laughs> I know. So, I mean, that's that's not something I ever anticipated. And, you know, I come at this from a scholarly background. I'm a literary scholar by training. And so in the book, I, you know, I often employ the methods that are true to my training as a literary scholar. You know, I, I, I close read and I talk about um, novels and literature and I use them as examples in my work. I thought that would scare a lot of people off. And I've been surprised actually by the response where, where people have been into that and they've been into the connections that I've been making with literature and culture and with the wider world. So I'm, I'm surprised and I have no complaints. <laughs> Do you detect a, you know, a gendered response to your work or a class, you know, race, class, gender? What what are you seeing so far in terms of who's re who this is resonating with most? Certainly, yes. Um, I think maybe the two first reviews that came out, um, they were they were actually pre-publication. Two of the earliest reviews that came out um, were, you know, a little bit on the middling to negative side. They were just short reviews. They were both written by men. And they both seemed to be discounting the idea that the problem I was diagnosing, this problem of loneliness, of lack of social connection, and its potential threats both to our mental health and to democracy, they were discounting that those problems existed. You know, thinking like, I don't see the issue that she sees. But then right after that thing started to change, um, there was a profile in The Guardian um, done by Elle Hunt that was not only complimentary, but really seemed to get it. And I started to notice this shift in um, response that I think was partially due to gender, um, as a lot of uh, women and you know females started reading the book. It's like I started to get more of this um, bigger response along the lines of people who seem to get it and understand and sympathize with what I was saying. So I, I have noticed a gendered response, although since then, I think it's become a little bit more mixed and a little bit more equal, uh, too. And so that's been interesting to witness as well. I want to ask about some of your other work. Uh, I know that um, you are a passionate Edith Wharton um fan and have been digitizing all of her work tell us a little bit about that and introduce us to edith wharton 
Sure. I started my career as a writer and as an author um, focusing on the American writer Edith Wharton, um, who was writing in really the early parts of the 1900s. She died in 1937, but wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book in 1920 called The Age of Innocence. And I fell into my love of accident of Edith Wharton accidentally. It came through working on first my PhD dissertation, which had a single chapter on Edith Wharton. And then I received a fellowship where I spent a summer working at her um, historic estate in Lenox, Massachusetts, and working with her library materials. And this became a, a full-fledged passion for me. Um, I got into um, working on her library and trying to digitize her library so that scholars would have access to it and would be able to paw through her books and look at what she underlined and what she wrote in the margins and everything like that. And in the process, I wrote a book describing that whole um, that whole process for me. Because for me, it um, it was not just about Edith Wharton, it was also about thinking about people's attachments to books and what books have meant for people at um, different points in history and especially for her at the uh, turn of the 20th century. So that book became my first one, which is called What a Library Means to a Woman. And it is um, thinking about how she rose to success and became the person she was in part because of the books that she was reading. So that set me up for thinking about um, the way that this happens in other spheres of society as well. Hmm. And then you have, uh, you wrote The Office, and <laughs> this is not to be confused with uh, the hit TV comedy, which we all know and love. Tell us about that. Yeah, my second book about offices actually came out in 2020, just as nobody was working in an office anymore. So that was somewhat um, ironic. <laughs> just as timing. they're being sold at fire sales. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, although in that book, the last chapter is called The End of the Office. And even though I wrote it before the COVID pandemic, what I was sort of predicting and thinking ahead to was the moment in American culture when we would cease to rely on the office as a kind of given, as a space that we enter into when we perform intellectual or knowledge work. So it's in some ways it's a history. I look back at what the office has been as a space to us over the course of the 20th century, especially um, and the way it's figured in popular culture like sitcoms and movies and everything like that, where it was so important for so long. And then trying to think about what our world and our society is going to be like when we move post office, which I think we are in the process of doing right now. <laughs> I mean, that's remarkable. Who could have? Well, <laughs> you could have predicted it, but even you didn't know you were predicting where we are now. Right. Um, what's next? So what's next is a question that I keep getting, and it's it's one I should think more seriously about. Um, at the moment, I'm still working on promoting the most recent book, The Hanging Out Book, um, which has been um, busy and a lot of fun. Um, so I'm continuing with the work on promoting that. There is an audiobook version that is um, due out later this year, and there's also going to be a paperback release um, next January as well. So we have new versions of the book that will be coming out, and I'm doing more promotion events for that as well. Um, I'm going to be participating in Vermont Humanities Speaker Series next January, too, um, in uh, timing that with the paperback release of the book as well. Hmm. Um, well, I think that's a great place to leave off the impact that you're having. And now we know that uh, we can blame the end of the office on you. Who knew? <laughs> um, but uh, thank you uh, for uh, your work and uh, sharing it with us. Thank you, David. This was so much fun. Sheila Liming is an associate professor of professional writing at Champlain College. Her new book is Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time, 